Uh, If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Isaiah 58. What? We're in Galatians. I know. Isaiah 58 is where you're going to get to eventually. This is going to be one of those Sundays uh, where you're going to put your finger in Isaiah 58, and we will get there when we get there. Um, Last week, we got through the first nine verses of chapter 2 of Galatians. We're walking through the book of Galatians, um, and we didn't have enough time to tackle verse 10 in a way that I thought would be helpful because it is kind of a big topic. And so this morning, verse 10 of Galatians 2 is going to be our jumping off point, um, but we are going to bounce around a lot today. Um, So, just to catch you up, Galatians 2, the end of this, it was the end of this confrontation. Paul goes up to Jerusalem uh, to meet with the pillars of faith, some of the Jewish leaders, to kind of get everyone on the same page, to make sure everybody's preaching the same gospel, everybody's pulling in the same direction. And everyone figures out that Paul's gospel, what he's been preaching for the last 14, 18 years, the gospel that he received from Jesus himself, that is the true, actual gospel. It's the same gospel Christ was preaching. It's the same gospel that the apostles were preaching. Everybody's on the same page. And so everyone is of one accord. Everybody's unified. And they decide at the end of this big confrontation, they decide, okay, Paul, you keep preaching to the Gentiles. You keep proclaiming the gospel of grace and forgiveness and love and mercy to the Gentiles. And no, they do not need to come under Jewish law. And we're going to stay and continue to pursue those that are already in the Jewish faith. We're going to continue to go into the synagogues. We're going to continue to point people and tell them that the Messiah that they long for and need has already come and his name was Jesus. We're all going to keep working together. And Paul says, that's great. Love it. And so the leaders send out Paul and Barnabas and they are sent out. And it says in verse 10 of Galatians 2, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. What's interesting about that verse is that this word eager could also be translated zealous. It was the thing I was zealous to do, eager to do, excited to do, passionate to do. It's the same word that if you go back up a few verses when Paul talks about his past life before he met Jesus, he talks about his zeal, his eagerness for being a Pharisee, for pursuing uh, the faith of his fathers and grandfathers. Before he was saved, he was zealous, so zealous for for the Jewish law that he was persecuting the church, and now his zealousness, his eagerness is for serving God's people. Paul, again, is a perfect example of what the gospel does, what the gospel can do. It takes someone and changes everything about them. So what I want to do this morning is we're going to start briefly, we're going to talk about the meaning and context, specifically for why this request gets made of Paul. Why, what's going on here? What does this mean? How does this play out for Paul and his ministry? And then what we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning doing is kind of zooming out and talking about God's heart for the poor in general. What does that mean and look like for us? How does this apply to our lives? Now, I'm going to tell you right off the bat, I don't have a lot of solid answers for you this morning. I have some ideas. I have some things we're going to sh- I'll talk about. But in general, I don't have specific answers for you. Do you give to every person who asks for money? I don't know, Maybe. How much do you set aside of your budget to be giving to the poor, to be giving to ministries? I I don't have a set answer for you. Those are answers you got to decide. Those are answers and things you need to wrestle with. What I do have for you this morning is a lot of Scripture. And so my hope is that this morning, if you have never considered, if you are a Christian and you have never considered your role and even your responsibility to the poor, that today would be that first step for you in thinking through that. For others, I would hope that this morning would spark in you a time to reevaluate your generosity. 
So we're going to have a lot of scripture for you this morning. A lot of it's going to be on the screen. Um, today's a real good day to take notes if you're a note taker, and if you're not, it's still a real good day to take notes because this is a topic and, I, and concept that God is very, very passionate about, and it is one that is very, very clear in scripture. Um, so I'm going to pray, and then we're going we're gonna to jump in, uh, and we're going to jump in. So please bow your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for another opportunity to gather together to celebrate you, to worship you, to rejoice and enjoy you. God, we pray for um, our kids in Grace Place this morning as they learn about you, as they hear the truths of your word, as they come to know who you are and that you love them. Lord, I pray that this morning is an impactful day for them. In the same way that it should be impactful for us this morning, as we open your word, you have given us the Bible And throughout generation after generation, this book has been attacked, it has been uh, persecuted, it has been tried to be broken down and stolen away, and yet here we are in 2021 and the word of God remains, and we know from your word it will continue to remain forever and ever. You have, this is you, the God of all existence, revealing yourself, revealing your heart to us. God, give us a hunger and thirst to know you better. Give us a hunger and thirst to know you deeper. As we open your word this morning, we pray that you would help us to sit aside the distractions, the hindrances, the things that get in the way from us hearing truth, or even our own preferences. Let us set those things aside so that we might hear from you this morning, so we would be challenged and convicted and encouraged by you this morning. This is your word that you have for us. Lord, I pray that we would hear your word and not just be hearers of the word, but be doers, be transformed by it, be people who live it out. Lord, as I preach, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. So let's start with the immediate context in Galatians 2. The leaders in Jerusalem tell Paul, remember the poor. Pretty much all commentaries, all scholars are going to agree that they're talking about, when they say remember the poor, they're talking about the Jewish churches. Remember, for thousands of years, it has been God and the Israelites. That was it, God's and the Israelites. The Israelites were God's chosen people. They were God's people, generation after generation after generation. And we talked about last week that most Jewish people, especially the leaders in Judaism, the Pharisees, they saw Christianity as a threat. They saw it as something that was attacking what they, the only thing that they knew to be true. They knew that God spoke to their ancestors. They knew that God was with them. They knew that the Israelites were God's chosen people. And now this other thing is coming around, and they saw it as a threat. I mean, for the many reasons they killed Jesus, one of them was they thought Jesus was a threat to Judaism. They believed that they were right. And as Christianity continued to grow and spread, as the gospel continued to change lives, People were convicted in their hearts of the reality that the works of the law could not save them, the the reality that the works of the law were not meant to save them, to save their soul, that they needed more, that they needed a savior, that they needed someone to go and defeat sin on on their behalf. It was, the law was meant to point them to something better, to someone better, to the Messiah, to Jesus and his sacrifice he makes on the cross. And as the gospel is going out and changing lives and doing this, people are walking away from the Jewish faith. They say, look, I can no longer live under the law. I need to live under grace. I am no longer a slave to the law. I am free in Christ. 
And that decision, though, came with consequences. Because for many, if you were a Jewish person and you walked away from Judaism, you didn't just walk away from Judaism. It wasn't like us today where it's like, okay, I don't like this church, so I'm going to leave and just go to another church, and there's really no pushback, there's really no issues with that. And that day, if you walked away from Judaism, you walked away from your family, you walked away from your friends, you walked away from your very identity. Unless your whole household and everybody you knew was also converted to Christianity and everybody came with, you walked away from your family. You got cut off from everyone. You walked away from your inheritance. You walked away from your, like I said, identity, your very role in the community. And if you were a female and you became a Christian, you didn't own land to begin with. You, didn't, you were barely a citizen to begin with, and so now you have no safety net. You are just kind of out there. You had nothing. And so we see in the beginning stages of the church, people are coming to Christianity. We see in Acts, as the gospel spreads, we see them coming together saying, I, I got nothing. And we see the Christians begin to pool their resources together so that they could provide for one another. In Acts 4, it says, The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things they belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were landowners or, or owners of land or houses, they sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. People are coming to the church. People are coming to Christianity, leaving Judaism, leaving literally everything coming and saying, look, I got nothing. I got no family anymore. I got no friends. I got no resources. I got no land. I got nothing but Jesus. Help. And the church said, okay, and those who were established, those who did have land or houses, everyone said, okay, well, let's figure this out. Let's pool what we have together and we'll divvy it up. And so then everybody can be taken care of and the gospel continues to grow. But even there, even in this idea of, okay, we'll just do a community thing, we'll pool resources and kind of divvy it up, Jewish churches didn't have much to begin with because let's not forget, the Jews are under oppression. They are still under Roman law. They are still second-class citizens. Many of them, most of them, very few of them were not high-ranking officials of any kind. If you did have any kind of real role with Roman government, you were a tax collector, so you weren't probably going to be part of the church anyway. By nature, the Jews at this time were not rich in and of themselves. And then when they walk away from their family, they have even less. So these Jewish churches that were coming to Christianity, who were, who were coming to the gospel, these groups of believers didn't have a whole lot. And if you did have something, they said they have landovers, landowners, house owners, most of, your, um, most of your expense, most of your value, your currency was not in Currency, like we have today, you didn't have money sitting in a bank. That wasn't the thing. Your money was tied to the land or toward your livestock. That had its own issues. In Acts 11, it says, Now in those days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This is a conversation for a different day, but some people will say the, the chapter of Galatians, Galatians 2, that we're talking about in this interaction between Paul and the leaders in Jerusalem, that that ties very nicely to Acts 11. 
Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. Either way, what we do know is a famine does happen at some point, and Paul and Barnabas are sent with money to go deliver to Jerusalem because the brothers and sisters there were in need, because what little they did have was now wrecked by a famine. We see this as a constant in Paul's ministry, this idea of as he went to churches, as he went on these missionary journeys, he was collecting funds to bring back to Jerusalem so that they could be divvied up amongst the different Jewish churches. We see it in Romans 15, 1 Corinthians 16, 2 Corinthians 8. Over and over, it mentions Paul's pursuit and Paul collecting funds for the church to be given away. He's collecting mostly from the Gentile churches because they weren't being kicked out of their families. They weren't losing their land and their livestock or being cut off. And not only that, they're Gentiles, so they have a whole different currency system and access to currency. You have people like Lydia in Acts 16 who dealt in purple cloth, which was a luxury item. She dealt in high-end fashion, and she becomes a Christian, and with that comes the money she was making. Generally speaking, the Gentile churches were financially a little better off, and in an effort to bring unity among the people, a unity among both Gentiles and Jews, Paul is collecting funds and saying, we're going to take care of one another. And so Paul is sent to keep ministering to the Gentiles, and as you do, Paul, remember the poorer churches. I think it's interesting that of those guys that are mentioned in, in Galatians 2 that he meets with, he says they, they call out James, Cephas, and John. James, Peter, and John. Those were the pillars mentioned. This heart forgiving doesn't just resonate here with Paul, but this goes through all of these men, and we see it later on in their own writings. James will say in James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. This is a good verse to memorize. You want to know what it truly means to have a relationship with God, it's this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. James had a clear heart for those who were oppressed, who were mistreated, who were outcasts. John will say something similar in his letters in 1 John 3, 16 and 17. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Well, children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? John poses the question, how can you possibly have the love of God in you? How can you possibly claim to know the unconditional, unrelenting, unearned, gracious, immense love of God if you have the ability to take care of somebody else and you choose not to? See, this is evident and prevalent throughout the New Testament church, this care for the orphan, the care for the widow, the care for the poor and the oppressed, the outcast, the one society say, you're not good enough for us to even care about you in a census. And the church says, no, that's, that's who God loves. And it's a dominant theme throughout all of Scripture. And so as we zoom out, and I, I want to see this play out in the rest of Scripture, I want to bring attention to what is the traditional tension that we see. When we talk about the poor, when we talk about what we could classify, and we're not going to get into the political side of social justice, being active to see justice happen amongst people. 
There's usually a, a tension when it comes to the church. There are some who, after seeing and reading the abundance of Scripture that has to do with God's love and care for the oppressed, and spoiler, we're going to see it, there's a lot, one side usually gets very convicted that it is our responsibility as the church, as Christians, to serve and love and care for people, even over and above giving the gospel. Let's feed the homeless, and it's not about giving the gospel, it's about filling stomachs and making them cared for. And with the best of motivations, they focus so much on the serving and the bringing about justice side of things, they do it to the exclusion of the gospel. They want to be inclusive. They want every voice to be heard, every person to be seen. They want unity. They want justice. All of those things are wonderful and good. And on the flip side, there are those who will say, what's the point of filling stomachs if those people are still going to hell? Now, what they really need is the gospel. And to the detriment of actually putting hands and feet in action, some will instead get so focused on evangelism, so focused on sharing the gospel and sending people out into areas of high concentration of homeless people that instead of passing out sandwiches, they pass out tracks. Does anybody remember what a track is? Okay, good. I, I wrote it and I was like, is that still a thing? It is. Okay. Instead of passing out sandwiches, they pass out tracks. They pass out Bibles. You guys are all smart. You see the weakness on both sides? How both sides need each other? Somewhere in the middle of these things is probably where we need to lie. How it's the gospel that fuels our pursuit of justice. Because our God is just, and he, through his justice, made a way for us to come to have a relationship with him. It is through the gospel that our justice is found and fueled. And as we look at the life and ministry of Jesus, yes, he fed 5,000. Yes, he did a lot of social justice kind of work, but he fed 5,000 after teaching them for four hours about what the kingdom of God was. See, there's, there's, it's both and. Yes, have compassion on the physical needs of people. They are real, and we need to address them, but not to the detriment of ignoring the gospel. And we also can't be so focused on the soul of a person to ignore the reality that they are flesh and bone as well. Because yes, Jesus said, walk, your, your sins are forgiven, but he also says, take up and walk. Go and sin no more, but you're also healed. He cared about the physical needs of the people, but he also shared with them the good news that the, the Messiah had come and their sins were forgiven. We need both sides because they work really well together. They fuel one another. It's a both and. And so this morning, we're going to go to Scripture, and the Bible shows us, because the Bible shows us God's heart. That's what, what this book is. It is God revealing himself to us through his word. I've said this before. I am so thankful and appreciative of my predecessor, Pastor Sergei Marchenko, for a number of different reasons, one of which is on one of the windows in my study. It's that he wrote the words, let the word do the work. And so this morning, I just want to let you for a while hear God's heart when it comes to the poor when it comes to the oppressed, when it comes to the downtrodden and the brokenhearted and the exiles and the outcasts and the sojourners, the aliens, the foreigners, what it is that God would have to say to us about how we as his people, how we as the sons and daughters of the Most High God, as we as the chosen ones called to be lights in this world, how we are to engage with those who have been taken advantage of. So like I said, I got a lot of scripture for you. It's going to be on the screen you can write references. I'm just going to read a bunch of scripture and just hear the word of God. 
Leviticus 19, verse 9 and 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Before I keep going, that right there, that's Leviticus. That's God is establishing the law for his people. Hundreds of years later, you get to the story of Ruth. And you get this woman who has nothing. She's tied herself to her mother-in-law. Her husband is dead. The mother-in-law's son is dead. These two are stuck together. They got nothing. But because of this law, Ruth is able to go to a field and glean. She's able to go and find food and be able to take care of her and her mother-in-law. And that leads to her having a relationship with Boaz. And that leads to her being grafted into the line of promise. And if you look at the generations of Jesus, eventually that relationship, because of that law, led us to Jesus being born, led us to the gospel happening. It is because of God's heart for the poor He uses all things, and the justice of God leads to the justice of God showing up on earth and going to the cross for us. Deuteronomy 15.7 If among you one of your brothers should should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you should not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Psalm 82, 3, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Psalm 103, 6, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Proverbs 14, 31, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him that him is God. Proverbs 17.5, whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. Proverbs 31.8-9, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. Isaiah 1.17, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's case. Isaiah 25, 4. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. I could do this all day. I mean, literally, there are over 2,000 verses in the Bible that have to do with poverty. This is barely any of them in comparison. You say, well, where'd I get those? You can just Google poverty in the Bible, and you will just, that's, that's your day of reading the Bible. Over and over throughout Scripture, God has made it abundantly clear what his people, whether it was the Israelites in the Old Testament or the church in the New Testament, what the people of God, how they are, they are to respond to the poor and the needy and the weak and, the, and the, un, those who are not taken care of. That we are to respond with justice and compassion because God has a heart for people, all people, because God made all people. Believers or not, they were made in the image and likeness of God. They have value. People have value and worth. Every person has value in the eyes of God, not because of what you have done or what you can do, but because you were made in the image and likeness of God. 
every person, regardless of color of skin, ethnicity, culture, immigration status, bank account numbers, every person has value and worth in the eyes of God because he made them, he knows them, and he loves them. And if we are going to be the people of God, if we are going to be the people who are supposed to point others to God himself by reflecting his character and qualities to this earth, then we are called to love as well. We are called to identify and care for those who have been outcasted from society, even those who will do nothing from us but take. Deuteronomy 15.7 If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, again, whatever it may be. God has a heart and cares deeply for the poor and the oppressed. And as the people of God, there is no room to walk in line with the will of God and also be hard-hearted or shut your hand, tight-fisted, closed off toward those who are in need. So what does that look like for us? It means we are to be generous because our God is generous. Proverbs 22.9, whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed for he shares his bread with the poor. Bountiful eye, this is a phrase, it's a, a generous way of looking at the world. It's actively looking for opportunities to be generous. It's not, well, if it happens, if I have, if somebody walks up, if somebody, if I happen to be in the right place at the right time, then sure, I guess I will do my best to be generous. No, a bountiful eye means I'm going looking for opportunities. I'm looking for opportunities. I'm going to go be intentional to find ways and times and places to put myself in so that I can be generous. Everybody wants to hear this message. For the person with a bountiful eye, that person is blessed. Generosity is a way for us to be the lights that point people to God. By being good stewards of what he has given us, we are able to show people our God is generous by the way we are generous. So be generous in how you give. And I'm not talking about just giving to the church. Yes, give to the church. If you are a member or regular tender of CF, give so that the ministry of CF can continue to go forward. But I'm not talking about just being generous here. I'm talking about be generous in giving, period. In giving to people and to organizations who are focused on serving the poor and the oppressed. Be generous with your money. Be generous with your time. One of the things that we do here as a church, I don't know if everybody knows this, but that we have a benevolence fund set up as part of our budget every year. So that if someone is in need, if someone comes to our church with a need, we want to be able to financially help those people. It's our desire to go beyond just financial support, though. Yes, financial support is good. If somebody needs groceries, needs help with bills, needs help with transportation, needs help with something, yes, financially we want to support them. We want to go beyond that, though. When we're talking benevolence, we talk about we want to be able to help them get into counseling, get into therapy, help them with their budgeting, help them with accountability and walking into these things. But sometimes we can't do that. Sometimes all we can do is give. Sometimes we meet somebody, they have a need, we're able to fill it, and we give. And sometimes in certain situations, having that deep personal connection and having, having that relationship isn't always possible. So sometimes all you can do is give some money. And amen, that's good. Be generous. 
But as you read scripture, as you hear about the heart of God for the poor and the oppressed, I don't think God is talking about taking care of the poor just means write a big fat check. I think it means more than that. I think it means caring for people, being intentional with people, interacting with people, being hospitable, which means caring for the stranger. How can you make a person feel welcome and cared for in that moment? You don't need a house. You don't need a big house or a big apartment to be hospitable. You can be hospitable to care for someone in that moment by making them feel welcome and cared for just in that conversation on that street corner. So what does it look like to be hospitable, to go above and beyond just money? It means talk to people. Treat them like a person because they're a person made in the image and likeness of God. See, ultimately, this is a heart issue. What's your motivation? What's your thought process? Why do you do the things you do? Because you see, our actions, when it comes to the poor and the oppressed, our actions or inactions directly affect our relationship with God. Proverbs 28, 27. Whoever gives to the poor will not want, but he who hides his eyes will get many a curse. This verse says, if you are generous, God will take care of you. If you turn a blind eye to the poor, you will have consequences for that decision. So that means the next time you're sitting at a red light and you see somebody walking in between the cars with the cardboard sign, and all of a sudden you get real interested in what's on the radio or what's on your phone or you take the longest sip of coffee you've ever taken in your life so you can avoid eye contact, you are hiding your eyes, and what is waiting for you are curses. Proverbs 21.13 Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. If you are a Christian, and you believe this is the word of God, it is a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path, You've got to reconcile these two verses with your life. This is not a rhetorical thing. What do you do with these verses? I'm not asking that rhetorically. I mean, honestly, this morning, I pray that this is a day of conviction for some of us. How do we respond to this? Because if you don't respond, it will affect your relationship with God. If you hear the cry of the poor and close your ears, you ignore the reality that there are poor that you can help, then you will call out to God and you will not be answered. You can have a right relationship with God. You have put your faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And if you ignore the poor, he will not hear your prayers. You want God to hear you? Do you hear the cries of the poor and not just hear, but respond? See, but there's the flip side of this too because Proverbs 19, 17 says, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his deeds. When you give to the poor, it is as as if you are lending to God and he will repay you. God so identifies himself with the poor in such a way that when we give to the poor, it is like giving to God and he promises to repay. Now, let's literally, we can't actually give to God because all of it is his anyway. We're just giving it back to him. But this is God telling us again how he identifies and loves and cares for the poor. 
And when has God ever made a promise that he didn't keep? And when has God ever been wanting to give and not had enough? No, he gives out of abundance. He gives out of his never-ending abundance. And so he says he will repay. What does repay look like? Maybe it's a dollar-for-dollar repayment. Maybe it's some other kind of blessing because our God is in control of all things at all times. And he will bless. And when God blesses, he does so in abundance and in excess because our God is generous. Now look, don't hear this and equate it with prosperity gospel nonsense or turning God into a slot machine. Right? We're talking about your heart. What are your motivations? Because if the motivation is, if I give, God has to give back to me. He said he would. But you've missed the point entirely. We'll talk about those motivations in just a minute. The motivation cannot be, I give so that I can manipulate God into giving to me. No, the motivation is God has already given to us in excess. So out of gratitude and trust that God is who he says he is, I will give. Proverbs 14, 21, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. But he who is generous to the needy honors him. Busy Sunday morning. When we ignore, when we hold back, when we neglect our ability and responsibility to care for the poor, we insult God. But to serve, to care, to provide, it honors God. It is worship. And seeing this as worship should change the conversation for us. Seeing this as so much bigger than just finding excuses and reasons not to give, not to be generous. Well, they're just going to use it for drugs. It's a scam. They just need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and try harder. If they really wanted a job, they could have one. Remember what we said last week. You are not God. I am not God. Thank God we are not God. It is not our place or role to judge someone or to make judgments about why a person is in the position they are in or their motivations for that situation. None of the countless verses I have read this morning, nor the ones I left for you to go find for yourself, say give to the poor as long as they have good motives and they're sober. Over and over, God identifies himself with the poor and needy and calls us to show compassion and love to them. To be generous and care for the poor is to worship God. Somewhere, somewhere along the way, we made caring for the poor a a nice thing to do if we have the time and resources. If that person meets the arbitrary checklist in our head, then maybe we'll help them out. The church went from, let's make sure no one is lacking anything, to, well, if we decide they're worthy enough, then we'll help. I truly believe the reason poverty and homelessness is so rampant in the country, let alone in our city, is not the government's fault. It is not the procedures of the government or programs or lack of programs from the government. It's a church problem. It's a problem that the church used to handle these things, and somewhere along the way we punted on our responsibility to care for the poor. We started reading scripture to acquire knowledge and picking and choosing the times we want to be the hands and feet of God. And sadly, even when we do say, okay, we're going to be real intentional with this, we want to give to the poor, we want to serve God, our own human fallen nature gets messed up in our motives. Our motivations get all out of whack, and that's why I have you in Isaiah 58. I told you to turn there like 20 minutes ago. Isaiah 58. God and the Israelites have this conversation. 
as they talk about fasting. And Isaiah 58 is about fasting during Yom Kippur. It's the one time in the Old Testament, the one day of the year where God commanded that his people should fast. Yom Kippur, the high holy day. It's the day where the high priest would go and lay on a, lay on a, a goat or a lamb the sins of the people and he was this substitute. And he would go into the Holy of Holies, the one place, the one day a year, he'd go into the Holy of Holies where God dwelt and he would offer prayers for his own sins and for the sins of the people. It's a, it's a holiday that is still celebrated today. And this dialogue happens between God and the Israelites. And God says to them in verse, in verse 2, he says, They seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgments of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. He says, they act as if they want a relationship with me. You go through the, the motions. You act like you want to have a relationship with me, but then you forsake my laws and my decrees. You use the words, but you don't actually live it out. And the people respond in verse 30, why have we fasted and you not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. The people respond and say, God, you told us to fast on Yom Kippur. We're fasting on Yom Kippur. Why don't you still want to connect with us? We've humbled ourselves. You take no knowledge of it. You're not paying attention. Look at the things we're doing. God told us to fast. We fasted. Why isn't this working? Do you hear the motivation? And God responds to them, Behold, in the days of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress your workers. You fast only to quarrel and fight and hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. You act one way, and on the other hand, you oppress those under you. You're fasting for an excuse to be angry and fight. You have missed the point. Of course I don't accept this, God says. We show up to church and we sing the songs, we put money in the basket, and the rest of our week we are selfish and self-righteous and ignore the tangible and real issues within our city that we have the ability to address because it's just easier not to. God tells them what kind of fasting he is actually looking for, what kind of worship he's actually looking for. He says, is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, Undo the straps of the yoke to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go forward before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. This is the vision of CF to be a lighthouse in Roscoe Village, Chicago, and the world. If we want our lights to break forth and shine, we are to care for the hungry and poor and mistreated. God has a similar conversation with the people in Micah because the Israelites don't really learn. We don't really learn. People ask God, what kind of worship do you want? God, do you want how many rams? How much oil? What do we have to sacrifice to make you happy? And God tells them in Micah 6, 8, he has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require? Not ask, not suggest, require, but that you do justice, you love mercy, and you walk humbly with your God. Justice, kindness, mercy, sharing, feeding, 
clothing, inviting, caring. It goes beyond just writing a check and dropping some money in a bucket. It's a matter of considering each and every person as an image bearer of God and realizing that you are, your standing as a Christian means you have a responsibility and requirement on you to reflect the love of God to the world. The same love that you received from God, we are called to reflect back to the world. See, as we've studied this letter of Galatians, Paul has made a point to emphasize the importance and value of understanding the gospel and clinging to what is the true and right gospel. And it's such a fight for Paul. He's clinging so tightly and desperately to having the Galatians understand the gospel because the gospel filters everything else. It changes and affects everything else. And this right here, remembering the poor, is a litmus test of your understanding and faith in the gospel. I heard it said by a pastor this week, and I really liked it. I'll paraphrase a little bit, but basically what he said is your generosity is directly linked to how well you understand the gospel. I'm not talking understand from an intellectual standpoint, like I know the verses, I know what God did, but from an experiential standpoint, from an emotional reality, from the spiritual understanding of what it is that God did for you by sending Jesus to die for you. Because the more we understand how generous God was, how generous God is by sending his son to die for us, how generous God was and how desperate we were in need of a savior, how desperate and how broke spiritually we were before we had Christ. If we understand our true need for the gospel and daily remember that, daily rediscover our need for the gospel, it will develop and cultivate a desire within us to be a person who cares for the weakest and the poorest and the most downtrodden, miscast, outcast. Because that's who we once were. Paul says in Ephesians, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. You know how much stuff a dead person can do? Nada. That's who we were without Jesus. The gospel calls us to be a generous and compassionate people toward our fellow image bearers on this earth. We do it because God is so full of love and justice. This is who he identifies with, and this is a way for us to point people to him. Close with this one last piece of scripture, Matthew 25. Jesus is speaking to a crowd, as usual. And he says to them in Matthew 25, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep in his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom, be prepared, prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, You did it to me. Jesus himself says that when we take the gospel message of hope and grace and mercy and love 
and justice, this message that we cling so tightly to, and we begin to live it out, actually treating people like people, caring for them, even and especially when they have nothing to offer us in return. When that happens, we are serving God himself. How we treat the poor and the weak and the oppressed, even just how we consider them in our minds, reveals how we feel about Jesus and what he did for us on the cross. Brothers and sisters, God loves you. He loves you so much he sent his son to die for you. He saved you from the wrath towards sin and saved you from an eternity in hell so that you can be a blessing to others. He has given us an opportunity to step into what he is already doing on this earth, redeeming all things back to himself, calling all things and making all things new. He doesn't need us, but he invites us to be part of what he is doing. And part of that is for us to love and care in the same way that he loves and cares for all people. It is a joy and an honor. Is it messy and hard and uncomfortable and makes things a little bit more difficult? Yep, it does. Messy, hard, difficult. That's a really tame way of describing what Christ went through on the cross. And he has empowered us with the Holy Spirit. He has given us this Holy Spirit within us, and one of the things the Holy Spirit does within us is convicts us, is points us, is gives us that little nudge to say, hey, you've got to have that conversation. Hey, slow down here. Hey, be involved here. Hey, step into this moment. Put the phone down. Put the ear pods away and just be present here because I'm doing something. That passage in Ephesians 2, Paul says, we have been created in Christ Jesus for good works which God has laid out ahead of time. Before you, in your life, from now until when you go meet Jesus, there are moments which God has already orchestrated, has been orchestrating since the beginning of time. He has moments in which you, because of the way he made you and knows you, your talents and abilities and gifts, he's got moments set up for you to step into to glorify him if we will pay attention, if we will not be distracted, if we will be intentional to listen to the Holy Spirit in us and we will be intentional to walk in the will of God. He's got moments set up that will glorify him. He's got moments set up that will, we can be part of what he is doing on this earth if we will just step in. I pray this morning that we would all have the same zeal and eagerness of Paul to remember the poor and serve those in need. Let's pray. God, you call us to big things. You call us into moments. You call us into daily choices. How intentional we're going to be. How engaged with the world we're going to be. God, life is hard in and of itself. Money, finances, time, jobs, all of these things. It's stressful. We're in a global pandemic just for an extra added level of stress, and we're tired, and it's hard to think beyond ourselves. It's hard to think beyond the next few hours. But God, when we dwell on you, when we focus on you, when we lean into and understand the height and width and depth and length of the love of God. 
Lord, I pray that it spurs in us a desire to pursue you by loving those who the world tries to tell us are unlovable. But we know it's not true. We know there is no one too far broken. We know there's no, no one too far gone. We know that there is no one outside of the love of God. There's nobody off limits to the gospel. There's nobody off limits to care and compassion and love and justice. You are a just God. You saw the injustice happening to your people in Egypt and you brought them out of slavery. You saw the injustice that we were under after Adam and Eve bit into that fruit and you brought us out of the slavery of sin. Jesus, who was rich, became poor so that we might inherit his righteousness. We might inherit his riches. God, help us. Because we live in a city that is broken and hard and we, we have many needs all over the place. And at times, it can be so overwhelming, it's easier to just close our eyes. But you have called us and given us a responsibility to not do that. To live with eyes wide open. To live with hearts and hands wide open. God, you know, I don't know, I don't think any of us knows what the answers are to these questions, to these problems. Give us wisdom. Give us discernment. Give us uh, the ability and the opportunity to hear the Holy Spirit moving within us, pushing us into moments, and give us the boldness to step in. Because when we do, it's not a burden. It's not a pain. It's a joy and a pleasure because we're worshiping you and serving. We're serving you and serving. We're giving to you. And that's good. God, help us to be the lights of the world. Help us to shine our lights brightly as you have made us and called us to be. We thank you. We love you. We pray these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen.